Hear the word of God from John chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. This reading comes from the Common English Bible, and you can find it on page 881 in the Pew Bible. Pilate went back into the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own, or have others spoken to you about me? Pilate responded, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your nation and its chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus replied, My kingdom doesn't originate from this world. If it did, my guards would fight so that I wouldn't have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. My kingdom isn't from here. So you are a king, Pilate said. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. I was born and came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. Whoever accepts the truth listens to my voice. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. By show of hands, how many of you, when you first got up this morning, thought to yourself, I am so excited that today is Christ the King Sunday? (laughs) Not a single, well, I didn't raise my hand either. Chances are pretty good you didn't even realize today was Christ the King Sunday. Chances are even better you don't even know what Christ the King Sunday is. You're not alone. Truth be told, even though this is an annual observance in the Christian church, we don't even observe it all the time in this church. It tends to get ignored in comparison to the higher profile, high holy days of the Christian year. And it doesn't help that Christ the King Sunday is not even a long-standing observance in the history of the Christian church, whereas other days and seasons like Lent and Easter and Advent and Christmas have been around for over a thousand years, Christ the King Sunday hasn't even been around for a hundred years. It started in the 1920s. And it wasn't even started for liturgical reasons, it started for political reasons. In the wake of World War I, when the world was filled with kaisers and kings and czars, the Christian church decided that it wasn't King Ferdinand or Kaiser Wilhelm who was the ruler of the world. It wanted to make a statement that only Jesus was the king, and so Christ the King Sunday was established. The other issue we have, of course, with Christ the King Sunday is that the language of king is kind of foreign to us today. You hear the word king, and it's usually the stuff of fairy tales for children or Game of Thrones for adults. And so, It is hard for us to say Jesus Christ is king in a country that, quite frankly, was established as resisting anything that looked like kings. That's why I think this conversation between Jesus and Pilate in John's gospel is not only so compelling, it is timely for us, not just because it's Christ the King Sunday but because it is a critical conversation for churches like ours to have if we are to claim the exciting future that God intends for Hyde Park United Methodist Church.
Think about what's happening here in this Scripture passage. This is not just two people having some casual chat. These are two titanic figures in the gospel story. On the one hand, in the one corner, you have Pontius Pilate, who is the most powerful Roman official in the entire province of Judea. And on the other hand, in the other corner, you have Jesus, the great spiritual figure, the the compelling preacher and healer, miracle worker, and the one who is Messiah. And they aren't just having a conversation. They're having a clash of worldviews. This conversation that they're having that took place 2,000 years ago is the very same conversation that is happening today. Not between Pilate and Jesus, but between two opposing worldviews. And it is this conversation that comes at a critical crossroads for the people of Hyde Park United Methodist because it is up to us to decide which corner we are going to stand in if we're going to claim the bright future that God wants for us. On the one hand is Pilate. Pilate isn't just a person. In this story, he represents all of Roman culture and all of Roman religion. And make no mistake about it, in the time of Pontius Pilate, Roman culture and Roman religion were one and the same. They were inextricably linked. To be a Roman citizen in that day meant that you automatically participated in the Roman religious cultic systems. You could not call yourself a Roman without worshiping the Roman gods. They were one and the same, culture and religion. And at the very top of the power hierarchical structure of Rome was Caesar. And Caesar wasn't just a political figure. He was a divinely appointed figure. He was there not just to rule the people, but to represent the Roman gods. That's how much religion and culture were one and the same in the time of Pontius Pilate, and that is what Pilate represents in this story. Now, before we go too far, and before we start disparaging this kind of thinking, before we start poking fun at what it means to be religion and culture one and the same as being too primitive for us modern Americans, I would invite us to notice that this kind of thinking has been very much alive in American Christianity in our lifetimes. We might not readily admit this, but Christianity and American culture have been just as linked in our lives. As much as we might want to deny this, As much as we might want to believe in the separation of church and state and the freedom of religious expression, for the better part of the 20th century, Christianity has enjoyed privileged status as what we might call the religion of American culture. The religion of culture. That's the phrase that was coined by a former bishop of the Florida Conference named Tim Whitaker a couple years ago. 
And what he meant by that is that for a very long time, even in our lifetimes, the church has functioned as the sort of spiritual and moral center of every society in this country. And that the close relationship between the church and the culture has enabled the church to promote its best morals and ideals and values for whatever community that the church was in. In other words, for centuries in this country, if you were a citizen in this country, it was easily assumed that you were also part of some organized religion, whether it be a church or a mosque or a synagogue. If you were an American, you were part of some religious system. And we might think that that has been a good thing. Not always. I mean, there have been some good things. For the most part in the 20th century, it was commonly assumed that an American citizen knew something about the Bible or knew something about the basics of Christian theology. The biblical and theological fluency was widespread. It was also assumed that the church had some kind of authoritative voice to speak out in the public square about matters of morals and ethics and values, and it was commonly assumed that mainline preachers like myself could speak commentary on the controversial issues of the day, and people out in the culture would listen to what the pulpit has to say. This was American Christianity for most of the history of Hyde Park United Methodist Church. This intimate relationship between religion and culture is what fueled the growth of many congregations in this country for the better part of the 20th century. And in fact, even for the past 30 years in the history of this church, thanks to visionary leadership and faithful commitments of people like you, all based on the foundation that Christianity was the religion of the culture, churches like ours grew. Especially in the 1980s with this phenomenon called megachurches. These megachurches would, would grow and their numbers would burst and people would come and there would be worship attendance and, and membership and financial giving just going through the roof, all based on this assumption that Christianity was the religion of the culture. But something has changed. In fact, something seismic has happened in that relationship between religion and culture in just these recent years. And it is this seismic change that I believe poses the single most formidable challenge for churches like this one if we are going to claim the bright future that God wants for us. Bishop Timothy Whitaker says it this way, he says, we are living in one of the greatest changes in the history of the church and in the history of Western civilization because the church is being disestablished as the religion of the culture. And you can call it lots of things. I've heard it called a post-Christian world or a post-Christendom world in which we can no longer assume that just because you are a citizen of a country, 
of this country or of any city that that automatically assumes that you are part of some organized religion in that city. We can no longer make that assumption. We can no longer assume that ordinary citizens out there, outside the church, have even just a basic literacy in terms of the Bible or a basic fluency in Christian tradition and theology. You can no longer assume that if you go to your next-door neighbor and ask them what church they go to, that they will be able to name a church for you. You can no longer assume that the church has any kind of authoritative voice to speak out in matters of public concern. In fact, just the opposite is happening. The fastest-growing religious segment in this country are people who have no affiliation and no interest in church whatsoever. We call them the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. That's a very different thing. The second fastest growing religious segment in this country are people who were affiliated with the church but are done with organized religion. We call them the duns. The nuns and the duns are the fastest growing segment in American religious culture. There's a church consultant named Alan Hirsch who, who works with churches to help them grow vital and healthy. And this is what he says. He says, even if every single Christian church in this country were working at maximum effectiveness, in other words, even if every church were totally healthy and vital, at best they would only be able to reach 40% of the American population because 60% of the people have no interest in a religion whatsoever. And Alan Hirsch says that percentage is growing every single year. Yet churches continue to function in the same old ways based on the same old assumptions that Christianity has some privileged status as being the religion of the culture. And so they think that if they just keep doing the same things, if they just keep offering more, more programs, more ministries, more worship services, if they just attract all the, the right kinds of people, if they just attract younger people, then if you build it, then they will come. Now, these formulas may have worked decades ago when Christianity was the religion of the culture. But as Todd Bolzinger says, the author of a book, Canoeing the Mountains, most churches are well-equipped to minister to a world that no longer exists. And this might be enough for churches like Hyde Park to push the panic button, which gets us all back to the conversation between Pilate and Jesus because Jesus offers a different way of relating religion and culture. Because when Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? When Pilate asks Jesus, do you believe that religion and culture are one and the same? Jesus offers a different answer. Jesus says, my kingdom doesn't come from this world. My kingdom isn't linked to this world. 
My kingdom isn't from here. I was born and I came into this world with one reason and one reason only, to testify to the truth. What an amazing answer. Because in other words, Jesus says that the church today is not called to cater to the culture. The church is not called to be in sync with the culture. The church is not called to enjoy some privileged status as the religion of the culture. Because that time has passed. Those, those years are gone and they are never coming back. And you know what? That's a good thing. Because if history has shown us anything about the history of the Christian church, it's that whenever the church has employed power in culture, religion and power have often resulted in harmful and destructive effects. So what that means is that the changes that are happening out in the world today are not threats to us. In fact, they are opportunities. They are invitations from God to rethink and reimagine what it means to be the church in a world that is so different than even 25 years ago. Because we can keep doing, on the one hand, everything that we have always done to reach out to people like us, many of whom have grown up in the church. But we can also do whatever it takes to reach out to people who have no interest whatsoever in organized religion. We can be the church of both the 40% and that vast wilderness of the 60%. And that compelling challenge has been the basis of our long-term strategic process called our visioning process over the last 14 months. So I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one, I invite you to go to our website sometime in the next few days, hydeparkumc.org slash state, and read a three-page document that I wrote called The State of Religion and Culture Today. And here's why. Because it goes even deeper into what I've just shared with you. And it ends with hope. It ends with some compelling convictions that I have that are even stronger now than when we started this visioning process over a year ago about why the future of this church is a bright one, not a dismal one. And here's why, in a nutshell, God has already given us everything we need to seize this bright future. God has given us our Methodist heritage. God has given us our Wesleyan way of thinking and loving. And God has given this church already everything it needs to both remember who we are and rethink and reimagine what it means to be the church to meet the challenges of this changing world. In fact, here's the last paragraph. I want to read the last paragraph for you. This will be less that you have to read later. Ultimately, the task of the church today is not to cater to culture or to assume privileged status as the religion of the culture. It is to create a distinct community of love as a witness to the culture that fully embodies the message of the gospel. It is to create connections between people that deepen their love of God and widen that love to all people 
It is to be united in all that we have in common and to express generous, generous charitability to all that makes us different. And it is to be adaptive in our means to make God's love real for the entire world. This is the basis of our long-term strategic plan called the Vision Plan, which our vision team has been hard at work informing thanks to listening to all of you and listening to the Spirit and listening to the community around us for the past 14 months. Which leads me to the second of the two asks today. In your bulletin today is a listing of town hall meetings that are taking place over the next two weeks. I invite you to attend one. And if you can't attend one, then watch the one that's online, either live or after Wednesday morning. Watch it archived on our website. And very soon, uh, these visioning town hall meetings will share with you all of the details of the vision plan shared by members of the entire vision team which we will then put before all of us in a church conference before the end of the year. We'll announce the date of that church conference soon so that you can come and formally adopt and approve this plan for the future of the church. Now, this conversation between Pilate and Jesus is still happening, whether churches realize it or not. Jesus comes to disrupt our assumptions about what it means to call him king. Pilate, on the one hand, represents an expired view of the status quo and a form of religious identity that is more in decline year after year after year. But Jesus comes to offer an alternative worldview, a different way of seeing ourselves and seeing the church and seeing how a church must meet the challenges of a changing world. This is what it means to call Jesus king in this church, that we will choose to follow Jesus into a changing culture, to be a witness to love, to share the message of the gospel, to call Jesus king in this congregation means we will do whatever it takes for people's love to deepen in their love of God and then to widen that love to all people without exception. That is our calling, that is our challenge, and that is our conversation as a church today. Let us pray together. God, we thank you for this challenging conversation between two competing worldviews. We thank you for the vision that Jesus gives to us about how we can be the church today. We pray, O oh Lord, that this conversation will disrupt our assumptions and unlock our imagination so that we can find new ways to be the church and to fulfill your intentions for the world. We thank you, God, for the gift of this congregation, for its history, for its heritage, for all of those who have contributed to its health. And now you call us to be part of this next chapter of the legacy of this grand church. May we rise to that challenge, and may we do so fearlessly and do so with hope, because indeed, your future for this world can be a bright one. 
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. And let all God's people say, Amen.